How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to X Lapsed, episode thirty. Wow, thirty episodes. That's a that's a pretty big deal, right? Well, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, today we're going to be wrapping up the Dawn of X number threes, which means today's Fallen Angels Day. I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> Fallen Angels, volume two, number three, at a February 2020 cover date. The story is called Seppuku. Written by Brian Hill with art by Simon Gudransky. Colors by Frank D'Armada. Letters VCs Joe Sabino. Designs Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Or the edits are Robinson White Sobolski. This one had a $3.99 cover price in the USA and went on sale on December 11th, 2019. Now, before we get into this story, um, just something that happened this morning. Uh, now, it's funny. After reading episode 29's X-Force bit, right, uh, I did something I don't often do when it comes to, uh, you know, putting together an episode of X-Lapsed. I actually scrolled down on the Marvel Wiki page for the issue. Now, full disclosure, I do check the Wiki every day that I do an episode just to confirm the release date for the issue. But that's generally where my Wiki research ends. You know, the, the release date is right there on the top, right under the cover. Bada bing, bada boom, I confirm it, and uh, I move on with my day. This time, however, I decided to scroll down uh, out of curiosity and to see whether or not there was any mention of Colossus being captive in Zeno's canister, and I found nothing. Then curiosity got the better of me, and I checked out the pages, the wiki pages, for some of the other books that we've discussed here, and also nothing. Now, it would seem that the moderators of the wiki uh, are only bothered to synopsize Hoxpox stuff, which, I don't know, feels a little bit half-hearted. Um, now, the way I look at it, if you're going to maintain a wiki, you're gonna, if you're going to build a resource for the fandom, you either do all of it or you just don't bother. Uh, it feels kind of cheap only covering the big books, right? Um, as a guy who uh, creates content... Uh, I'm, I would say I'm fairly prolific. I, I'd never say that I was good, but uh, facts are facts. I am prolific. For just about five years, I've been doing something every single day. And I struggle to find an audience. I struggle to find folks to listen or to read or to watch or whatever. And when I get in my own head, you know, and I think about the struggle to find an audience and, uh, and I get kind of down on myself... That's where I try to reframe what I do. Um, what I do is sort of kind of evergreen. Um, uh, this might be 
less so this program, but uh, I try to keep my content as evergreen as possible so someone may find it at any point in time. And that's where I start telling myself that I'm building a resource. You know, for future researchers, comic historians, whatever. If uh, anybody wants to hear about, you know, five five issues from the mid-70s where Vartox appeared in Action Comics, it's there. You know, I, I feel like I'm building a resource here. And I understand that there are... I mean, there's cheap heat out there, right? I could do... You know, I could do every issue of Crisis, and I'll know that people will look at them. I can do, you know, uh, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. I could do Watchmen. I could do the. I could do the hits. You know, and I know people will come. But I'm building a resource, so it's all or nothing. So I see these. Uh, I see these. You know, wiki pages for uh, these Dawn of X books, and they're blank. Because I have a feeling the people who write these things realize that ain't nobody gonna look for Fallen Angels number three. But they will look for House of X number two. So they spend all their time doing that. I I, I don't know why that gets under my skin so much. I, I Actually, I do know why it does. I feel like if you're building a resource, well then damn it, you build a resource. You don't just, you don't just play for the hits. Um... But yeah, uh, I'll get off my soapbox here. It's just something that jumped out at me when I was just trying to find out if Colossus was in that canister in X-Force number three, and I found diddly and squat. But uh, but I can find five or six people trying to do the do the page for House of X number two with the uncanny lives of Moira X. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know, that just gets under my skin. But, all right, so we're, we're talking about a book that... Very few people care about us. You know, definitely the people at the wiki don't care about it. We are getting into Fallen Angels number three. Okay, so we open the very beautiful cover, and uh, we get we open with another purpley prosy page, wherein Apoth refers to itself as a god, and Quanan as the mother of God. We even get a riff on Michelangelo's creation of Adam painting with a machine finger in the role of God's own. Uh, it's already. Just a little bit head up its own ass, and uh, we're only three panels in. Then we got a full page of our trio of heroes stood before that giant spidery mech from last issue's cliffhanger. While we're looking at the cast, let's meet them. And it's a pretty short list. It's just Psylocke or Quanon, Cable, and X-23. After two more wasted pages, we're back to comics. Cable launches into an attack on the mech and is swatted away. Now, this leaves Psylocke and X-23 to hide behind some debris to plan their next move. This gives Quanon the opportunity to tell X-23, a killing machine, how to do her job. She says that the enemy deserves Laura's rage. And so Laura snicks and bum-rushes the bot. I don't exactly know why Psylocke felt the need to hold her back when she ultimately just told her to go kill the thing. Uh, I don't know, this mentor-mentee relationship between the two of these uh, these characters here feels incredibly forced and wildly unnecessary. Anywho, Laura slices and dices, and once she makes her way to the soft nougat of the monster, of the spider bot, that is, uh, Psylocke reels her back. You see, there's a tiny child inside the machine who begs not to be killed. In Portuguese, which, thankfully and conveniently, Laura understands. Psylocke taps the tot on the head to read its thoughts and is overcome by what she sees, but we'll put a pin in that for now. 
We shift scenes and we rejoin Cable, who is strung up in a tree by his arms. He's ultimately freed by a shadowy figure and is invited to accompany it so they might discuss the future. Now, from Cable's point of view, this thing looks uh, kind of like a... I don't want to be crude, but a very diseased part of the female anatomy. Cable fires at it, but is suddenly struck in the back of the head by a machine part, which looks as though it's lodged itself into his dome. Cable smiles. I, at least I think he's smiling anyway. Uh, the creature tells our man that they can now behold the peace of the one mind and let it cleanse him. Ugh. Then, two pages of prose. Just what we needed. A break from a pretty dull story with some even duller text. It's titled, Excerpts from the Scrolls of Exile. Nope. <laughs> Though a quick scan of these pages, I can see the word butterfly no less than three times, so... No. Back to Psylocke. Now, she's scanning that kid's brain and learns that, doi, Apoth took the children. I thought we already knew this. I, I don't know why this is a revelation. The kid in the bot then dies. Psylocke X asks why Apoth keeps taking children, to which Laura reminds her that, you know, Quanon had a child taken from her, and so this all feels kind of like a message to her. Apoth, overclock, it's all about Quanon. The ladies then spend an entire page having a wildly forced back and forth. They ultimately come to the conclusion that they're going to have to call off the search for Cable and instead go after the children, because Cable would have wanted it that way. Which is fair enough, I guess. Speaking of Cable, he's once again strapped to something. He must really be getting used to like that spread-eagle pose, because he's always strapped to something. He's addressed as part man and part machine in perfect unity. And we finally see this creature out of the shadows and uh, has a page out of like a recent issue of Spawn somehow fallen into our Fallen Angels book? Because this... Uh, <laughs> this is uh, kind of uninspired here. Uh, goes without saying, this is to be continued. At least we're halfway through. Next, we will be discussing not X-Men number four. That one skipped. Instead, we're going to be jumping right into Marauders number four. But first, let's... Let's talk about this. This was, well, this was more or less just a fight scene. And uh, one that doesn't inspire me to say all that much, unfortunately. Uh, I'm starting to feel like I should save all of our mailbag correspondence for Fallen Angels Day just to get some extra minutes <laughs> added to the episode. I mean, I know that this is a free show, uh, but with subjects like this, I still can't help to think that I'm somehow ripping you all off. <laughs> In some form or fashion. I really can't think of much to say here. Um, I couldn't imagine coming away from this having spent $4 and feeling as though I'd gotten my money's worth. Uh, the art's still strong and the cover was beautiful. But at the end of the day, there just isn't all that much in the way of meat on these story bones. Um, what do we got? A fight with the spider mech. Cable got taken away by that gross whatever the hell ghoul thing and that's it. We seem to learn the same facts about Apoth that we've already learned over the course of the last two chapters. I think we've learned it each chapter. So this is the third time that we learned that Apoth kidnaps and uses children. I mean, yeah, we saw that in the very first panel of this series. 
I'm really not sure why this was treated like such a revelation here, but whatever. And at this point, I'm just vamping to fill time. Uh, this is just, there's nothing to say about it. I didn't hate it, but it didn't inspire me to want to read on. Naturally, since this is a completionist program and I am not a writer at the Marvel Wiki, and also I'm an idiot, we will see this one through to its conclusion. Just like with the previous two issues of the series, I can't say it's outright bad. It's just not for me. If this sort of story is your jam, then you're probably on Cloud9 and you're digging the hell out of it. So, that is that. Since this is the final third issue of the Dawn of X run here, let's, uh, let's rank the books in order of, uh, I can't say quality, but uh, in order of how, how much I liked them. Number one for, for Dawn of X books three is Marauders. Um, it wasn't the greatest issue, but this was kind of a, a ranking of attrition <laughs> week here. Uh, these were exceptionally weak offerings from uh, the, the entire spectrum of X-Books here. Marauders, I did enjoy the most. So Marauders gets top slot. Second, I put X-Force. Third, I put Excalibur up, you know, th- like two slots from where it usually is. Fourth is X-Men with its, uh, you know, the Golden Girls, the old ladies. Fifth is New Mutants. And sixth would be Fallen Angels. So, you know, it is a it is a different week. It is a pretty different week here. Marauders, though, probably out of the three issues we've gotten from all these books, Marauders is the most consistent. You know, I, I wasn't the hugest fan of it last week, but... Uh, but yeah, this is probably the most consistent book of the line so far. So there's the rankings. I look forward to hearing other other folks chime in on what they feel uh, were uh, were their rankings for the third issues of the Dawn of X run. But uh, now before I let you all go, let's dip into the mailbag here. We got one from Damien, and he is uh, referencing X Force number two and Excalibur number three. Now, he starts with, At the risk of becoming too self-referential, I need to respond to your to your response and my feedback. First, I really don't think writers are using Beast as an author mouthpiece. I think his change of character is down to the general cultural shift which sees, which sees nature is good and science is bad. Like Reed Richards and Hank Pym, Beast is being portrayed as flirting with villainy. This is not just a comics trope. Stranger Things would be a good example of this trend. It genuinely seems that writers are incapable of writing heroic scientists nowadays. I know in the UK we have seen some very bad real-life outcomes from the identification of science as paternalistic and controlling. Hopefully we're seeing a reevaluation which will be reflected in our stories. And that's a very interesting take, and it's not one that I had even thought of, though. Your point is very well taken. Um, I'm trying to think here about heroic scientists and uh it's insane uh the only one i can sort of think of off the top of my head is is walter white and he cooks meth so (laughs) it's that's as close to a heroic scientist that i can think of so yes your point is very well taken (laughs) i still do uh maintain that i feel as though beast is a uh a lot of a lot of the writers um points of view are being funneled into beast i I do feel like that is something that is happening on top of it as well and i could think back to uh you know the matt fraction run uh was uh was one where i felt like beast was being uh was being 
what the writer wanted to to have said. Uh, the, some of the Bendis run, um, yeah, I, I still maintain that 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 that's how I feel at least. Um, you mentioned Stranger Things, which is one of the uh, one of the bones of contention I have with my wife. She wants me to watch it with her, and I won't. Um, I watched part of the first season until I realized that it was ripping off basically like the last three video games I'd played. It was like such a one-to-one ripoff. Um, I'm watching, and I had just played a game called Beyond Good. Oh, no, Beyond Two Souls. It was uh, one of those David Cage games, um, kind of like uh, Heavy Rain or that one that the Detroit one, I think. Whatever the whatever the latest one was. Um, but in it, it is basically a one-to-one. Uh, the the folks who who created Stranger Things ripped it off. Pretty much wholesale, and then they went to the underneath part, and I'm like, "Wow, now it's straight now it's Silent Hill," and my wife was like, "Okay, we're done watching this together. <laughs> You're just gonna tear it up." Um, yeah, not 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 too keen on that show because I I think it is a uh, wildly overrated. But I don't know, maybe later seasons it's uh, less of a ripoff and more of its own thing. But I probably won't find out. Um, now back to uh, Damien. He says, "As for the worst X book ever, I've never read Mutant X." I have read a couple of the issues of Chuck Austin's run. I particularly remember the Havoc Polaris wedding two-parter as a huge waste of money. In fact, I probably would have to declare that worse, a worse story than Fallen Angels. The truth is that Fallen Angels is a perfectly competent attempt at po- poetic, sexy, bad girl comic from 1995. It's a good version of a bad idea. The Chuck Austin run was a bad version of a terrible idea, and to this day I wonder how it got published. I cannot see how the same editorial structure could allow Chuck Austin and Grant Morrison to be on the book simultaneously. And no, when I when I mentioned that a couple episodes back, I was definitely being a bit hyperbolic, uh, as I assume you were as well when you were talking about Fallen Angels number two. I try to keep things even-handed, and I'm sure most listeners might have noticed, uh, even today. Didn't love Fallen Angels number three, but I can't outright call it a bad comic. Uh, it's just perhaps... The most un-me comic that I've tried to read in over, you know, quite some time. And I feel if we're just taking things as X-books, right, um, it's probably the worst, you know, in in quotes here, X-book, in the terms that it just doesn't feel like an X-book. Now, the Chuck Austin run, warts and all, felt like an X-book. A bad (laughs) X-book, but an X-book nonetheless. Fallen Angels does not. Fallen Angels... I maintain that this could have been released as a lost, uh, you know, a story that, uh, what's his face, Jim Valentino found in his desk that had a 1995 date on it. And, and we wouldn't we wouldn't think anything else. You know, we wouldn't think anything the wiser. Outside of, you know, X characters being in the book, of course. It's funny that you mentioned the non-wedding of Havoc and Polaris. Uh, I feel like that's where the worm really started to turn on Chuck Austin. While people myself included, weren't enjoying his run. Especially when, you know, you pair it up with with the Morrison run. Um, I don't know where I'd put the Joe Casey run, because uh, the Joe Casey run was another one of those divisive runs. The Joe, Joe Casey was who Chuck Austin would replace. And I remember that being a pretty split uh, divide in the X-Fandom, whether or not that was any good. I wasn't a fan of it. Um... I didn't like that uh, Joe Casey brought his automatic Kafka um, partner, Ashley Wood, 
with him for some issues. Uh, even Uncanny X-Men number 400, you can barely make a thing out of it because it has this uh, this Ashley Wood art, which worked great in Automatic, Automatic Kafka, but for Uncanny X-Men number 400, no, 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 no. Um, but Chuck Austin came in and... Uh, he had a little bit of fanfare when he came in because he had just done uh, the U.S. War Machine for Max, uh, which wasn't great, but it wasn't awful. Um, and he was doing... Uh, he did a two-parter in Ultimate X-Men. It was a Gambit story, which was fairly re- well-received. Uh, so by the time he came on to Uncanny X-Men, I think, I think people were... I don't want to say cautiously optimistic. Maybe they were just optimistic. But the wedding of Havoc and Polaris was where the worm really started to turn and where people started to realize some of his uh, habits. Uh, People started to question and grumble about Austin perhaps having some uh, issues with the fairer sex, you know, with women issues. And if you reread his run, which... I suppose I wouldn't recommend. His portrayal of women is kind of suspect. Um, They're really only there to service men or to be insane. (laughs) And really no middle ground there. Really no middle ground. So um, I think that's where the worm started to turn and people were just like, wow, this guy is not worth our time. Even then I was a completionist, so I kept up with the whole thing. Um, And... Yeah, it wasn't a great run. <laughs> it really wasn't. Uh, I remember they brought in Kia Asamiya to do the art, and everybody had like these beaks, you know, these tremendously pointy noses, and it just was not uh, like Angel was made like a like a Bishonen character. If you're familiar with the Bishonen manga, the pretty boy manga, but Asamiya's art isn't pretty, so it just looked like a really bad version of of an attempted. Pretty boy, so not great, not great Um, Now Mutant X, you said you haven't read it And I wouldn't wish it on anybody But at the same time, it's kind of one of those books That you almost have to see to believe Because if you question how the Chuck Austin run got published If you read Mutant X Oh man, you're going to wonder how how this got published (laughs) Because... It was at the at the at toward the end there, like the second. Actually, only the beginning is decent. Everything after that, you're gonna question how this made it past an editor's desk. How somebody agreed to pencil it. <laughs> how anybody agreed to sign their name to it. I mean, I mentioned it before. Howard Mackey wrote it, and he had to write the, his next X Men book under a pseudonym. Because it was that poorly received But uh, yeah, I'll I'll leave it at that Um, Back to Damien, he says On to the issue at hand, and this is of course Excalibur number 3 It remains underwhelming Why is Shogo a dragon? Because, huh? Why is Richter unable to control his powers? Reasons It just feels a bit pointless And you're right It totally does These are very, very convenient bits and bobs being sprinkled in Which... You know, I've made this uh, I've made this criticism before, and I think I've done so with X Force. It feels to me a bit like these stories are being written in reverse. And again, nothing inherently wrong with that. But I feel like if you're gonna do that, the seams shouldn't be showing quite as much as they do. 
it feels here like everything is in service of a greater a greater good or a greater point and it all feels very very meticulously backwards written if that makes any sense um to me it feels like you know it's almost like a magician doing a doing a uh, doing a trick but holding the instructions as they do it so like you see all the steps you know um you see all the seams and by the time it all pays off it feels like it's it's been telegraphed so i mean we talked about the cerebro sword it's like okay that would be novel if we didn't see it coming um or but then again i could be wrong who knows <laughs> uh, damien wraps up his message with i'm fascinated for tomorrow which was new mutants 3 i can't wait to hear your reaction to new mutants number 3 i know i genuinely thought you'd i'd bought the wrong book and yeah oh boy <laughs> Uh, by now, uh, you might already know how I received New Mutants number three. And I gotta say, you were 100% dead on. It almost feels like I picked up the wrong book, or at least the wrong issue of the right one. Because this one came out of nowhere, uh, knocked me <laughs> right off my feet with, like, how much, huh, <laughs> was in this issue. Uh, I was ready for Deathbird. <laughs> I did not get Deathbird. And I never thought I'd be disappointed not to get Deathbird, but here we are. <laughs> Thank you so much for your thoughts, Damien. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Uh, next, we have a uh, message from Jason. Uh, now, this is regarding New Mutants number three. And he says, you're right. We've already seen a plethora and a half of power dampening already. Uh, I know that the real reason is that the writers can't have the muties easily w- win every fight. In-universe, I can rationalize that by saying, hey, given that the mutants have gone and gotten all uppity lately, one expected response by all sorts of human groups would be to pour resources into anti-mutant tech. Does it make sense for this group of hicks to have access to that tech? I don't know. It'll depend on who these hicks turn out to be and and to whom they're connected. So yes... This is an excellent point, and uh, if we're doing, like, headcanon here, it's it's pitch perfect, right? I mean, that makes all the sense in the world. Uh, this is a new landscape, and the mutants are, you know, they're flexing right now. You know, they are flexing their power, and they are not being shy about the fact that they are, in many ways, superior, you know? Um, this is... This is the whole tone and tenor of the Dawn of X run, is that the mutants are, they have the upper hand. So yes, it makes perfect sense for all sorts of human groups, human scientists, human engineers, to try to find, and and I made this reference last time, um, we had a power dampening bit, that I, I said it felt like all the villains in the DC Universe were suddenly carrying a chunk of kryptonite. Now... Batman has a kryptonite ring, which makes sense, right? That's just in case. So I could definitely see this as being one of those, uh, you know, in case of fire, break glass sort of situations where we need these power dampening things just in case. Makes perfect sense. I don't have enough faith in creative to <laughs> to think that that's why they did it. I feel like it's still, it's still kind of lazy. Um... Uh, you know your 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 point, notwithstanding, and how much sense that makes. I feel like the writers should be a little bit more creative, and they shouldn't all be leaning onto the same thing at the same time. Now, if it turns out that these hillbillies are working for Zeno, hey, that makes sense, right? It could very well be that. Um, I don't remember if the Orcus people have power dampening things. I would assume they do, but 
Yeah, it just seems it seems like we're going to this well just a little bit too often, and uh, I don't want to say it's love diminishing returns because it's not the most interesting thing in the first place to have our mutants try to work around not having their powers, but uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm not reading these in the progression that I should be because I'm doing these episodes right now every day, um, so I am reading a book every day, so. Instead of waiting month to month and seeing a power dampening thing, you know, once every couple weeks, I'm seeing it every day. So it's kind of like, you know, hail on a tin roof for me, where it's just like, oh, God, again. (laughs) And that's, I think a lot of my complaints about these, uh, these books are a result of the, the manner in which I'm receiving them. Uh, the frequency in which I'm reading them, things like the double-page spread of creds, that that gets under my skin because I'm seeing them every day. The info pages are just like, okay, let's move on. And here we are with power dampening. So, I don't know. (laughs) I'm just talking to talk right now. But back to Jason's message. He says, By the way, I know it's a cause lost worse than the literal meaning of the word literally, but the phrase should really be power damping, not dampening. Damping means to reduce the amplitude of a wave by draining off some of its energy. Dampening means to make slightly moist. <laughs> That's true. I don't. I'm now. Now you have me second guessing myself. I'm, did the books call them dampenings, or did they call them dampings? And I'm just calling them dampenings. I, I don't know. <laughs> I think I've always just called them dampenings. Um, <laughs> Jason wraps up with, uh, "I had a high school physics teacher who impressed the distinction on us students by spraying us with a water bottle, like we were cats who had jumped up on the mantle again, anytime we used the incorrect term. Now that's what I call pedagogy. Easy for me to say, pedagogy. Pedagogy. I, I know I used to be able to say that word. I don't know what it is now, but that is a very good point. <laughs> that's." It's funny because I think earlier this episode I said uh, I said that I'm a prolific creator of content, and prolific is one of those words that I think people don't really know the meaning of. Um, I think people when they hear the word uh, prolific, they think there's an automatic assertion or assertion or illusion to someone being really good at something or something being of top quality. You know, oh, they're so prolific. When it's like, no, I just. <laughs> I just spit into a microphone every single day. That's what makes me prolific. Quality is, you know, I'll leave that to other people. And uh, and uh, oh, and if and if uh, if you don't think I am, I I, I apologize. But uh, thank you so much for sharing, Jason. Um, I did respond a bit on Twitter to your message, but I I wanted to give fuller thoughts or at least more rambly ones here on the air. So thank you so much for uh, for reaching out and following along. It's always a treat hearing from you. And finally, we have a short little thing from Andrew, our friend Andrew at Mighty Evil Doom on Twitter. He says, I'm about to listen to all the number threes at work today, minus Fallen Angels, but that's fine. And uh, I just wanted to include that because I love hearing that. I love uh, hearing that that folks will have me in their ear all day. (laughs) As scary a thought as that is, because I literally have me in my head all day. And it's it's not always the best thing. But... uh, no, that means so much to me that uh, that people enjoy this content uh, enough to uh, to subject themselves to my voice for uh, extended periods of time. Um, I did uh, respond to him and uh, warned him that these number threes were a little lacking. Um, 
and he had a very nice comment in return. He said that uh, he said that he just he enjoys the commentary more. So I, that means the world to me. That really brightened my day. So thank you so much, Andrew. Um, and now, hopefully, you're listening to the final the the Fallen Angels uh, episode here, and you'll see that uh, the quality of the number threes did not uh, did not soar to the skies. So. <laughs> Fingers crossed the number fours will be better, but we will uh, we will find that out soon enough. But that's where we'll leave it today. Uh, I want to thank everybody for uh, listening and reaching out. Now, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so at uh, Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find me at Chris is on Infinite Earths and xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at 90s X-Men and... Uh, I also started a Tumblr thing. I don't know what Tumblr is, but I uh, I realized that I could share links there. So I have a tumbling page here. <laughs> it's it's under Xlapsed, so I don't know how you search on Tumblr. I tried searching a little bit, and I couldn't find anything. So I think that's something I might just be too old for. Uh, but eh, it's an avenue, so we might be able to find some new ears and some new hearts to reach that way. We will see. Um, the audio archives, chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You can find thousands of hours for, hopefully, your uh, listening pleasure. So those are there, and they're just waiting for your ears. So uh, one more time, I want to thank everyone for listening. 30 episodes, a nice round number, right? That's uh, pretty cool. So thank you all for sharing your time with me, for sharing your ears with me, and uh, for being there for me. I really, really appreciate it. But uh, till next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.